Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast, where we talk about the history of rock and roll, band by band. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti. Before we get to Beatles Part 3, I want to answer a question that I'm getting a lot, and that is, what band slash artist am I going to cover next? Now, I've told some of you the unofficial answer to this question, and I'll do the official reveal after the Beatles season, but I definitely plan on doing... Uh, seasons on the bands that I consider to be the most important to understand the history of rock and roll, like the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, The Who, Pink Floyd, David Bowie, Nirvana, Queen, The Band. I mean, that's not an exhaustive list. There are plenty more that I plan on doing here on rock bands. But I am curious to know if you all want me to finish the Beatles season when they break up or if you want me to keep going and do a few episodes on their solo careers. Their solo careers won't be as long uh, as the history of the band itself, maybe just a couple episodes on each of their careers. I will for sure cover this topic at one point because I think the Beatles have really fascinating solo careers, and it's very relevant to understanding the landscape of rock and roll post-Beatles, especially in the 1970s where there was kind of that post-Beatles vacuum uh, that that was going on. So before I officially tell you what band I'm going to do in season two, I'm going to do a poll on my Instagram at some point asking you if you want me to continue with the Beatles through their solo careers, or if you want me to take a break from John, Paul, George, and Ringo and cover a few bands after the Beatles. So be on the lookout for that poll. Okay, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Turn those notifications on, follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast, and share this podcast on your social media with your friends, with your parents, grandparents, anybody who you know that likes rock and roll, music, or the Beatles. All right, let's get started. Rock Bands Podcast, Beatles Part 3. In the winter of 1964, the Beatles were playing a few shows in Paris when they found out that they had conquered the United States. Their latest record, I Want to Hold Your Hand, became their first number one on the American charts. I Want to Hold Your Hand was such a smash hit that it dragged songs like Love Me Do and She Loves You to the top of the US charts as well. This means that they could finally go to America not as a support act, but as one of the biggest bands in the world. The Beatles had a friend in America, Ed Sullivan, the host of the popular American TV show called, you guessed it, The Ed Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan introduced Elvis Presley to the world, and he had his eyes on the Beatles from afar. Sullivan had actually witnessed Beatlemania when he was waiting to board a flight at London Heathrow Airport in 1963. The airport was buzzing with anxious fans awaiting the Beatles' return from tour. Sullivan made a note that this band, though not yet known in the U.S., could have some potential. When the Beatles finally topped the American charts, Brian Epstein got in contact with The Ed Sullivan Show and secured the Beatles' top billing on a few episodes of the show in February of 1964. The first trip to America was a huge deal for the Beatles. They all loved American music and culture. The only Beatle to ever have stepped foot on American soil was George, who had visited with his family before the Beatles were famous. George jammed with a few local bands and music clubs and even gave copies of the Beatles' singles to local radio stations on his trip. 
John, in a move that surprised the band, brought Cynthia along with him to America. The press in the UK had recently found out about his secret wife, and her appearance with John in America made the fact well known there as well. British people were also quite proud that they were exporting the Beatles. This was at a time when British power was declining in the world. They were losing their grip on their colonies, and they were no longer the global superpower that they were in the 1800s, having been replaced by America after two world wars. For Britain, the Beatles conquering American culture was a huge deal. The Beatles arrived in America on the 7th of February 1964. The stakes were high as the band's arrival was highly anticipated by Americans who were still in a kind of national mourning after the assassination of their president, John F. Kennedy, just three months before. A lot of people say that this could be a reason for the Beatles' unprecedented success in the U.S. After such a huge national tragedy, here comes a quirky British boy band that makes teenage girls go crazy, and they make music that even parents find pretty catchy. The Beatles may have been the first thing after Kennedy's death that Americans experienced as a country, and whether people were hearing their music or talking about their weird hairstyles, it was lighthearted and fun. By the time the Beatles arrived in New York, it seemed like everyone was wondering what that whole Beatle thing was all about. On the plane ride over, John and Paul were not as optimistic about their chances to succeed in America. They thought that maybe I Want to Hold Your Hand was just a passing fluke. Not only that, but the history of British bands succeeding in America was pretty grim. Cliff Richard, the biggest British star before the Beatles, went to America and had little to no success, and his career started to spiral after his return. Paul reportedly said on the plane, quote, Since America has always had everything, why should we be over there making money? They've got their own groups. What are we going to give them that they don't already have? Unquote. Years later, John reflected on the worries about going to America, saying, quote, We didn't think we stood a chance. Cliff Richard went to America and died. He was 14th on the bill with Frankie Avalon. We thought at least we could hear the sounds when we came over. That's the truth. We went over there to buy LPs, unquote. John, Paul, and Ringo were filled with anxiety and had come down with a case of imposter syndrome on the flight over, while George was being quiet and detached, sitting on the other side of the plane. George started to feel achy and fatigued on the ride over. By the time they landed in New York, he was sick. They were scheduled to play the Ed Sullivan show two days after arriving, and by then George was so sick, he was just lying in bed with 104 fever. The Beatles weren't even sure if George could do the show. The band had to rehearse and soundcheck without him. George was determined to play that night. He didn't want to miss his big break in America, so the doctors gave him a few shots to boost his energy. On February 9th, 1964, the Beatles played live on Ed Sullivan with a television audience of 73 million, setting the record for largest television audience for any program in American history. They opened up with Paul taking the lead vocal on All My Loving, Till There Was You and I Saw Her Standing There, followed by John's lead on She Loves You and the main event, I Want to Hold Your Hand. The Beatles would play twice more on The Ed Sullivan Show that February, as well as two shows at Carnegie Hall in New York and a show in Washington, D.C., before heading back home to the U.K. Though the Beatles' trip to the United States was short-lived, America had officially fallen in love with the Beatles. They were wholesome, different, and exciting. Sullivan captured the feeling that many Americans at home and in the press had of the Beatles' visit before he introduced them for their final performance on the show that February. Sullivan said, quote, you know, all of us on the show are so darn sorry, sincerely sorry that this is the third and thus our last current show with the Beatles. 
because these youngsters from Liverpool, England, and their conduct over here not only as fine professional singers, but as a group of fine youngsters, will leave an imprint on everyone here who've met them, and that goes for all of us on the show, unquote. With success in America, the Beatles not only became the biggest band in the UK and the US, but the biggest musical sensation in the world. With America now hooked on British rock and roll bands, a new period called the British Invasion began, where popular British rock groups like the Rolling Stones, the Animals, Herman's Hermits, the Dave Clark Five, and others would come to play in America. They'd play Ed Sullivan, play some concerts for screaming fans, but none of them would make the impact the Beatles did and they would always have to deal with being in the shadows of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Not only this, but the Beatles' trip to America made rock and roll the number one form of American entertainment, and the music industry would never be the same. After the explosion of Beatlemania in the United States, the band had to hurry back to the UK because Brian Epstein had signed a contract for them to shoot a movie. The band wasn't really into it, it kind of felt corny and overly show-busy, but for seven weeks after the trip, they had to hang out on a film set. The movie was to be a musical comedy about Beatlemania, with a soundtrack of new Beatles music. George Martin had about half the songs for the soundtrack already recorded, and the boys would have to write and record the other half before the film's release. One of the pre-recorded songs, Can't Buy Me Love, was recorded in Paris when the Beatles learned they were number one. They released that as a single in March of 64, and it shot straight to the top of both the UK and the US charts, proving that the Beatles had staying power in America. The film itself was pretty funny. John was the witty, absurd Beatle, Paul was the charmer, George had the dry, deadpan sense of humor, and Ringo was the goofy, helpless member of the band. The movie's about the band running away from mobs of screaming fans and getting themselves into a bunch of funny situations. It's actually pretty good and holds up, and it's parodied really well in movies like Austin Powers. On set, George met model Patty Boyd, who was acting in the film. George wanted to go out with Patty, so he jokingly asked Patty to marry him that day. She actually turned him down because she was dating somebody else already. George was disappointed. When she showed up on the set a few weeks later, George asked her how her boyfriend was, and Patty told him that they had broken up. The two began dating immediately, and he would marry her two years later. John also met, or should I say re-met, somebody pretty important on the set of the movie. His father, Alfred, had heard all about John and the Beatles in the papers, and couldn't believe his eyes. He also read a bunch of stories about how John had been abandoned by his father and he apparently wanted to set the record straight with his son, so he reached out and the two arranged a meeting. When the two met, Alfred assured him that he wasn't interested in money, just a chance to explain himself. Some reports say that the two talked amicably and others say that John kicked his father out a few minutes after talking. Whatever happened, though, this is not the last time the two would meet. While back in the UK, the Beatles were given the Show Business Personalities Award by the Variety Club of Great Britain, which was presented to them by the future Prime Minister and leader of the Labour Party, Harold Wilson. This is kind of a new trend. They now had to meet with the leaders of the countries that they would visit, and they would have to do a whole bunch of big public events. John famously quipped at the event, quote, thanks for the Purple Heart, unquote. The Beatles also returned to Liverpool to be given the city, the key to the city by the mayor. At the ceremony, flyers were kind of going around the crowd accusing Paul McCartney of fathering two illegitimate children of a young British girl and a German barmaid. This was not the first time that these stories popped up about Paul, and Epstein had to pay off the two girls so they'd leave Paul alone. 
The claims are likely false, but there's really no way of knowing given the lack of DNA testing back then and the Beatles' reputation for womanizing. The film and the album were released in the summer of 64 and was a huge success. The band decided to call the film A Hard Day's Night, which Ringo is said to have come up with to describe a long workday that lasted into the night. John called it a classic Ringoism. Once they had the name, John and Paul went into a room and came out a bit later with a song by the same title. That's really how good they were. They became composers that could write a timeless classic made to order. They also wrote songs like If I Fell, Can't Buy Me Love, I Should Have Known Better, all to be included on the album. George was also becoming, in his own right, a really good guitar arranger. He's known now as a musician who has always been dedicating to servicing the song, never being too flashy, but more being precise and adding good hooks and riffs that the song really needs. A great example of this is on Paul's And I Love Her, where George added that four-note hook that defined the song. Paul mentioned in an interview a few years ago about how the band was struggling to make And I Love Her stand out, before George came up with the riff. Of the riff, Paul said, quote, that's the song, unquote. George also adds that jangle to the band's sound at this point. He bought a Rickenbacker 12-string guitar in America, and you can hear it all over the album. Most notably, that opening chord of A Hard Day's Night, which is very controversial and very deeply analyzed. If you just look on Wikipedia, there's a whole page about what chord he's playing and what Paul is playing over it. It's a whole discussion. He also plays a great 12-string solo on that song. When the Beatles released A Hard Day's Night, it of course went to number one. With the new albums and singles in the charts, the Beatles now had 14 songs in the U.S. Top 100 with three consecutive number ones. On the back of huge success in America and in Europe and in the film world, the Beatles set off in the summer of 1964 on their first ever world tour. To kick off their first ever world tour, the Beatles played shows in Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong. Before the tour, Ringo Starr had been hospitalized with tonsillitis, so he spent the first leg of the tour in a hospital bed in England and was replaced with session drummer Jimmy Nickel. Ringo eventually met up with the rest of the band and started playing in Australia. The Beatles would also institute an informal no-girlfriends-or-wives-on-tour policy. They pretty strictly followed this rule even in the studio until John meets a certain Yoko Ono but we'll get to that another time. After the tour of the Pacific, the Beatles started a big tour of North America. They played 24 dates in a month, selling out venues like the Hollywood Bowl. The Beatles caused some controversy, though, before one of their shows at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida. There was still racial segregation in the American South at this point. The Beatles, after hearing that they were expected to play a segregated audience in Florida, simply said that they would refuse to play. Paul McCartney said of the episode, quote, We were due to play in Jacksonville in the States, and we found out that it was going to be a segregated audience, blacks on one side, whites on the other. And it just seemed so mad. We couldn't understand that. So we just said, we're not playing that, unquote. John said at a press conference before the concert, quote, We never play to segregated audiences, and we aren't going to start now. I'd sooner lose our appearance money, unquote. The venue relented and didn't enforce segregation at the show. 
After the incident, the Beatles put their refusal to play segregated audiences into their touring contract, which was a pretty big statement at the time, and their first political statement. They didn't have these disgusting racist practices like segregation in the UK, or in most of the rest of the world for that matter, and the Beatles were pretty smart and they followed the American civil rights debate, so it was kind of natural for them to be against segregation. They just felt like it was the humane way to do it. If you think about it, Paul was in his 20s when the episode occurred, and he's only in his 70s now. It just goes to show you how backwards this practice was, even at the time, and, and it was pretty recent on the grand scheme of things. On tour in America is also where the Beatles got a chance to meet one of their heroes, Bob Dylan. They were big fans of Bob Dylan and would listen to his album, The Freewheelin' Bob Dylan, over and over again. The Beatles arranged to meet Bob Dylan in New York City, and Bob came and hung out with them at the Hotel Delmonico. The band was nervous, because while Bob Dylan wasn't a huge pop sensation like they were, he was a critically acclaimed artist at the time, and his lyrics were serious and philosophical. The Beatles, on the other hand, made a lot of money and had crowds of screaming fans, but they sang pop songs, love songs, and breakup songs. Dylan still admired them, though. He was an acoustic player with a harmonica, and was becoming more and more intrigued by the electric rock and roll played by the Beatles, and he was actually thinking about moving in that direction. Less than a year later, Dylan would release his debut rock and roll album, Highway 61 Revisited, with that opening track, Like a Rolling Stone, causing an earthquake in the world of pop music. That's beside the point, though. Their meeting with Bob would prove to be life-changing, and not because of their musical tastes, but because of something else Bob introduced them to. When Bob entered the room, things were a bit awkward at first, like it is when you first meet someone. To break the ice, the Beatles offered him a drink and a selection of pills, mainly amphetamines, which was the band's vice of choice at the time. As conversations started to flow, Bob mentioned that when he first heard, I want to hold your hand, he thought that instead of saying, I can't hide, the Beatles were actually singing, I get high. The Beatles admitted to Bob that they had never really smoked marijuana with any success. Bob immediately decided that this needed to change, and within minutes, the Beatles, Brian Epstein, a few roadies like Mal Evans, watched on as Bob Dylan rolled up a joint. Dylan kept screwing it up, so he handed it to one of his people who finished the job. Dylan then handed the joint to John, who handed the joint to Ringo. John called Ringo his royal taster. Ringo smoked the joint like a cigarette, not passing it around. Each Beatle got their own joint, and after just a few minutes, their night had changed dramatically. Apparently, John and Ringo couldn't stop laughing at every single thing. Even Brian Epstein, who never wavered in his professionalism, was doubled over in hysterics and acting silly. Bob Dylan would answer every phone call the hotel room got, pretending to be the Beatles. Paul was convinced that he discovered the meaning of life, but he kept forgetting. When it finally came back to him, he made Mal Evans write it down. The next day, Paul retrieved the paper from Mal to see what the meaning of life was, only to find a crumpled piece of scrap paper which read, quote, There are seven levels, unquote. That night with Bob Dylan, the Beatles' lifelong love for marijuana began. After this, all four Beatles became habitual pot smokers, and it really changed their outlook, their image, their willingness to experiment with different drugs, but most importantly, it changed their music. Nowadays, the Beatles are synonymous with pot and trippy music, but when they were touring the US in 1964, they were the darlings of the press, and I'm pretty sure the last thing they would ever want revealed is what they were smoking in their hotel room with Bob Dylan that night.
While the Beatles enjoyed so much positive press coverage in the US and the UK, it's clear now that a lot of this was just publicity. During this period in the mid-60s, the Beatles were put on a pedestal and could do no wrong in the eyes of much of the press. Now, of course, this couldn't possibly be true, and they couldn't possibly live up to the standard. We all know that they did drugs, they cheated on their girlfriends, they might have fathered some illegitimate children and hung out in red light districts. They also did things that today we would consider to be downright wrong. I really want to tell the story of the Beatles honestly. I don't want to share only the good or the cool things that the Beatles did, and I definitely don't want to glamorize the horrible things they did either. That wouldn't be an honest way to tell their story. I'm a huge fan of their music, their history, and in a lot of ways, them as artists. But that doesn't mean that they didn't do things that were simply awful and would rightfully be condemned today. For example, though they liked and really admired and trusted their manager Brian Epstein, they pretty relentlessly mocked him for being gay and Jewish. We also know that John could be pretty violent towards people, at times even his wife. At pretty much every show, John would often do pretty mean and offensive imitations of handicapped people to get laughs from the audience. They would also have their staff select girls to invite up to their hotel rooms. A lot of them, obsessed with the Beatles, I'm sure were too young. It was wrong then and it was wrong now. Now, these are not things to be celebrated or glamorized, nor are they things that should be erased or ignored. Uh, when we talk about rock and roll bands and history in general, there are going to be a lot of things that we find crazy, offensive, or simply terrible. Understanding that nobody's perfect and that these are just people and that times have changed uh, is pretty important when we look at history. We definitely can't judge people who were 20 in 1960 for not acting perfectly by today's standards, but we also shouldn't ignore their flaws or mistakes. I think a lot of times today, there's kind of a tendency to say, oh, well, this was all good or this was all bad. That person is either in humanity's hall of fame or they're canceled, right? But history is really complicated. And one of the benefits of looking back is we get to say, this part's pretty good and that was bad, so we shouldn't do that anymore. You know, the Beatles very publicly stood up for civil rights and refused to play segregated audiences, but they didn't always act righteously behind closed doors. I think we have to have an honest, balanced look at the Beatles and historical figures more broadly, so we can really appreciate them for what they were and what they weren't. The Beatles were already the most popular band in the world, but the sheer size of their success in America made them larger than life. As a result of all this, they became really rich. John and Paul made the most money since they were the composers, but George and Ringo were still raking it in big time. John was often conflicted because on one hand, he really loved his new life as a rich global superstar, and he loved the new blossoming swinging London scene, but he also valued his privacy and he was still a father and a husband. To make Cynthia happy and to get his, himself and his family away from the craziness of Beatlemania, John bought a 27-room mansion in Weybridge, Surrey, England. It was a country home not too far from London. Ringo, recently engaged to his new girlfriend Maureen Cox, who people call Mo, moved to Weybridge just down the street from John. George moved to Escher, which was about 10 minutes away from Ringo and John. Only Paul would stay in London with his girlfriend Jane Asher for the time being. During this period, John, Ringo, and George got particularly close. They all loved to just hang out in the garden, watch TV, drink a bit of beer, or just chill, John and Ringo in particular. 
Paul drifted from the rest of the guys a bit during this period simply because he lived in London and they lived in the country. Paul really liked the nightclub scene, and while the guys also liked to have a night out, they would have much rather just chilled at their houses. As couples, they would often go away on vacations together. Around this time, John and Cynthia went to Tahiti with George and Patty, and Ringo and Mo went to the Bahamas with Paul and Jane. When John and Paul would meet up, it was often to write music or to fulfill their professional obligation, rather than just to hang around. Don't get me wrong, they were still the best of friends, but their working relationship was extremely productive and definitely took precedent here. Since John moved into his new mansion, he would have Paul, quote, by appointment, unquote, and the two would write in his music room. One of the two would usually bring an idea, a lyric, a riff, a chord progression, or sometimes nothing at all, to the writing session, and the other would help fine-tune it and turn it into a Lennon-McCartney song. Paul later said of his working relationship with John, quote, we never had a dry session, unquote. Other than the lyrics, they didn't really write the songs down or record demos either. They had a rule that if both of them could remember the song that they had worked out the week before when it came time to show it to the other guys and record it, the song was good. If they didn't remember it, it was out. The huge success of A Hard Day's Night and their very high-profile world tour meant that their next album was very highly anticipated. The album was released in December of 1964, and it was titled Beatles for Sale. While I always liked this album, I never really thought about it as all that memorable. However, after listening to it for this podcast, I realized that it was actually a significant departure from their earlier work. John's lyrics in particular are more self-deprecating and dark, in songs like I Don't Want to Spoil the Party and I'm a Loser. There was also a definite Bob Dylan influence on both Lennon and McCartney's lyrics, in their songs like I'll Follow the Sun, Babies in Black, and What You're Doing. The Beatles also began to experiment a bit with the studio at this point, which George Martin was kind of gradually allowing them to do. They added a big, long, droning feedback intro in I Feel Fine, and they added a fade-in to the beginning of Eight Days a Week. Normally, fade-ins were at the end of a song. Both of these songs, I Feel Fine and Eight Days a Week, topped the charts in 1964. Ringo and George took lead vocals on two Carl Perkins covers, Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. The album displaced A Hard Day's Night from the top spot, and it stayed there for weeks. Beatles for Sale stayed in the charts for almost a year. The Beatles re-included covers in Beatles for Sale, which they didn't do on their previous album. This was because the pressure of touring and the constant public appearances, they were having trouble keeping up with the demand for material. Their best songs had to be singles, and they didn't want to make an album full of subpar filler tracks. At the beginning of their careers, John and Paul were really worried that their next single or album might not be as well received, or they might not have the hit that they needed. Now, in their fourth studio album, John and Paul began to tire of the same run-of-the-mill pop songs that they were cranking out. Even though they loved the songs they were writing, they wanted to introduce more interesting musical ideas, melodies, and instruments. They wanted their lyrics to escape that boy-girl love song format. They realized, though, that the pressure of being the Beatles that won the hearts and minds of America on Ed Sullivan, singing those songs about holding hands and innocent young love, was only getting stronger. The Beatles were starting to settle down in the country with their ladies, smoke pot, and think about how they could be more successful, serious artists. 
At the same time, the tours were getting bigger, the screams were getting louder, and the money was getting better. And the pressure to be the Beatles that everyone wanted them to be was only becoming more and more uncomfortable for them. Thank you so much for listening to Beatles Part 3. You're not going to want to miss Beatles Part 4. Next week we're going to talk about help, rubber soul, and an experience that John and George had that kind of ushered in what we now consider to be the 1960s. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Write a review, share us with your friends, share us on social media, follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast. And until next week, listen to the Beatles. <laughs>